So this morning is uh, August 25th. It is 2013. I have one of those titles that is probably going to raise eyebrows, and that's okay. I've never minded doing it. 81 Days of Passion. I got every man's attention in the building, and the women are scared to show interest. I understand. 81 Days of Passion is our message this morning. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis 1, 14. And uh, Susan, you can put that slide up when you get it. Um, say there when you're there. Wow, that's really little. Okay, so in Genesis 1 and 14, we've gone through the first day, gone through the second day, gone through the third day, and on the fourth day, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. Oh, my goodness. In all of the things that we could have been told about the creation, in all of the many questions that people may have had, one of the things that God chose to write in the first chapter of his Bible was that the Signs and seasons would be marked by the stellar realm. He goes on to talk about a greater and lesser light that would govern the day and the night. And all of this on only the fourth day of creation. It became important from the very beginning that we understood God's Spirit was hovering over the waters of judgment in a dark situation. And what's the first thing that He does? He injects His light into that situation and he begins to divide the light from the darkness. And then he sets up rulers in the very stellar realm that would show us where we were in the progress of the seasons. This is because God wants in every Christian's life to speak light into it. He found you in a dark place. His spirit was hovering over you even when you didn't recognize what he was doing and he was looking for the opportunity to inject his word. As soon as His Word takes root in you, your life begins to turn around and He sets for us signs and seasons and markers so you'll know where you are on the journey. There is no better way that He could do that than in the feast schedule of Israel. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, we have an interesting phrase. And that phrase becomes important for the rest of our study. Is it okay if I teach a little bit today? In the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, starting in the first verse, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts. Whose feasts are they? They're the Lord's. They're not Israel's. They're not America's. They're not some messianic group. They're not some group pretending to be messianic. These feasts belong to the Lord. These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Understand, leave that on the screen, Susan. Understand that to proclaim is essentially to preach. God chose Israel to preach a message to the whole world. And it's a message that is just like Genesis 1.14. He hung stars in the sky that would let mankind know what the seasons were. Then he put a people on the earth to proclaim that heavenly message. As the months go by, here is what is going to happen. 
we find that in the Feast of Israel, and I'm going to show it to you, but I want to tell you this word that in your Bible says sacred assembly is called mikra. Now, this is a definition that came from uh, Strong's, and mikra could be said something called out, a public meeting, or what's that last part say? A rehearsal. In Israel, if Baj and Natalie are going to get married, there is a night before the wedding. You show up, and they get married usually on Tuesdays, by the way, in Israel, because it's a day that God called blessed twice. They show up, and they kind of go through what is about to happen. What do you call that? Rehearsal. rehearsal, and you usually celebrate it with a rehearsal dinner, don't you? It's kind of the highest day that you can have prior to the actual wedding day, right? Now, the rehearsal is not the wedding day, and the wedding day is not the rehearsal. One is just a mirror of the other. That's the point. Every time we got together to proclaim a feast that belongs to the Lord, every time the people of God got together, they were also rehearsing something. The rehearsal was not the reality. It's not the same as the reality. It simply was to show you where to stand, what to do, who you should be listening to, and how it was going to go when the reality came. Is that fair enough? Now, in Leviticus 23, you see the list of the feast. And in this list, I put the months of the year for you. Have you ever tried to read a Hebrew calendar and were confused? The Jewish people are some of the smartest on the planet. There's no question by that. And their, their calendar is a lunar-based calendar. And I, with a calculator, I can't figure it out. So I put on the, uh, the screen for us the months of the year. Nisan was not their first month of the year normally. But when they came out of Egypt, God said, you're being born as a nation. This month for you is the first month. Now, did you have an experience in your life where it's as if you got to start again? You got covered under the blood of the Lamb, and what was done prior no longer counted. Life began anew for you. In other words, you were born again. The nation of Israel had existed in a manner of speaking, but it had existed in a slave state. And God didn't call them to be slaves. He called them to be free. And when He took them from slavery to freedom, it's as if they were born again. He started their calendar again. He said, this month is for you going to be the first month, and that's Nisan. And in the first month of their year, the first feast that they're supposed to proclaim is Pesach or Passover. Passover was, if your house is covered under the blood of the Lamb, then the angel of death will pass you over. You've crossed from death to life. You're no longer in the judgment of God. You're in the salvation of God. It's no mistake that Jesus died on Passover and that every gospel ties him to Passover so that everyone would know what they had been rehearsing all of those years was really found in the reality of Jesus. Amen? Amen. You move from Passover to unleavened bread. In unleavened bread, the father in a house, let's just say Michael Hutchinson, would take a great big flaming menorah. This would be symbolic of the seven spirits of God or the perfect expression of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And he would search his house with his family, mom and children following him. Mom would have hidden some leaven in the house. She hid the leaven so that dad could show the children 
that they found leaven in the house. And when they found it by the light of the menorah, they took it outside and they burned it. This is where the whole world gets the idea of spring cleaning. They watched the nation of Israel rehearse this over and over and over. Every spring, just after Passover, they went into unleavened bread. Now, as a believer, don't you, as soon as you fall in love with Jesus, begin taking an estimation of your life and begin throwing out things that don't work? By the way, if you need an external set of rules to do that, you're missing out. The Holy Spirit of God will show you what doesn't belong in your life. And men so often have gotten this wrong. They've made the kingdom of God about the length of your hair. They've made it about the length of your sleeves. They've made it about what you eat and don't eat. And you know what the kingdom of God is really about? Obeying every word that comes from God's mouth to you. Suffice it to say that he might tell one man to cut his hair and another to grow his hair? Is it biblical? Well, he told told Ezekiel to shave his head with a sword. He told Samson he couldn't cut his hair. Now, teenagers, if you're getting happy right now, I'm also telling you the Bible says obey your parents. <laughs> but listen, so then it's not about the length of hair. It's about doing exactly what God tells you to do. Unleavened bread is a commitment to eat the Word of God in its purity with no contaminants. You can read about this in Exodus 12, Exodus 13, Exodus 14 as they carried out these events. But this morning, that's not our text. From there, you would move on to first fruits. Three days after the Passover, something would happen. The people were harvesting, and they would take a golden, not a golden, a scarlet sash, and they would tie it around the very best produce from the field, and they would bring it into the temple, and they would wave it. They would say, there's a whole nother harvest out there, and this is the best representation of it. Just as I brought you this, the rest is coming in. Now, we know at the resurrection of Jesus, it was like God waving it around, like Him saying, there is now a glorified man in the Godhead, and I will bring the rest of you in in the same way. By the time you go through the next month, Ayar, where there is no feast, you're looking forward to Savan. Savan is when Pentecost, or the Hebrews call it, Shavuot occurs. It's in the third month of their year because it was in the third month that they came to the mountain of Sinai. And at the mountain of Sinai, not one or two Israelites, but say every. every. Come on, say every. every. Every single Israelite heard the voice of God. They saw on the mountain a cloud descend on the mountain. Can you imagine what it would be like if every single American heard the voice of God? I want to tell you everybody in the nation of God, everybody who is that holy, royal, chosen priesthood, has heard the voice of God or you're not in the priesthood. But they heard it and they commemorated this. Pentecost was a time period where the nation of Israel got together because Leviticus 23 said to do it and they celebrated the uh, manifest presence of God. And of course, this reminds us of the second chapter of Acts when the nation of Israel is gathered from the four corners of the earth in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit was poured out in a way that everybody could see and hear. God spoke to Moses in a bush that was burning. He descended on Mount Sinai in burning fire, and he descended on his people in tongues of fire. This happened every year as a rehearsal to remind his people what was going on. You went from Savan into a time period that was difficult. How many of you are teachers in here? 
Look at that. We got three. How many of you participate in homeschool co-op? Oh, now our numbers are growing. How many of you have been in school? Preacher will know how to get everybody involved eventually. How many of you got ears? He who has an ear, let him hear. <laughs> so here's what I'm saying. You remember when you started the school year? Boy, it's drudgery, isn't it? I mean, you just come off three months of a break, and you're like, oh, no, I can't believe this. I don't remember anything from last year. And really, seriously, you're going to give me homework on the first day? Really? That's how this works? And by about September, you kind of... You're kind of in the rhythm again. And what are you looking forward to? Soon as November comes, you know you're about to hit some holidays, right? And when you come back from the holidays, it's a whole new year, and you, you don't have long before summer again. You, you remember that cycle? Well, this was Israel's grind. They come off of Pentecost. They come off of Shavuot, and they have to go all the way through Tammuz, all the way through Av. And when they hit the month of Ul, that's their sixth month of the year, they know that they're approaching that final feast season. Because sometime in Tishri, and understand, their calendar is not set in the way your calendar is set in the ancient world. Somebody had to witness a sign in the heavens. They had to see the phases of the moon, and they weren't sure on the exact day that they would have two witnesses that agreed. They didn't know the day or the hour. They knew what season they were in. As soon as they heard the phase of a moon, something would happen a trumpet would blow. Now, anybody in this place have a job that if you didn't finish on Friday, you may have to stay over to Saturday? You ever had one of those? Your last two or three hours of the day are productive as all get out, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, if you know that you're going to have to go to summer school, man, you cram for your final to avoid it. If you know that you're going to have to come in on Saturday, the month of Ool, the sixth month, was... Oh, my goodness, the trumpet's going to blow. We better get ourselves right. So it was associated with repentance. You can move to that next slide. I want to show them that. Uh, the sixth month of the biblical calendar precedes Rosh Hashanah and is best characterized as a month of Teshuvah. Teshuvah is a Hebrew word that says, I'm going this way. I bumped into something. I can't go. I have to turn and walk the other way. God's left me no choice. In the month of Ul, you hit a brick wall. You know daddy's about to come home. And if I don't get right right now, I'm going to get a whipping in the month of Tishri. In the month of Tishri, you have three feasts just so that you know. You can go back to that. Those three feasts are Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement where all Israel, say all, all Israel was saved on the Day of Atonement. Every single Israelite every year for 1,600 years. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, you celebrated the time in which you used to live in tents, and now God had given you a permanent dwelling. Now, if you have eyes to see, what you begin to notice is that Jesus was our Passover. You begin to see that we're living in the days of unleavened bread and that we have seen first fruits. Some of you have experienced Pentecost and you love it. And then you enter into those difficult months where we're waiting for something. We're waiting for a trumpet to blow. Paul spoke of the last trumpet to sound. It's no mistake there are seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. No mistake at all because God said from the very fourth day, I'm going to set markers in the heavens. 
And then he said in Leviticus 23, I'm going to have people on the earth that are going to proclaim the message. How many of you know that God likes to have his message proclaimed in the heavens and on the earth? He likes it proclaimed in the heavens and on the earth. He likes it so much that when he made Nick, he made him of the earth, but he breathed the substance of heaven into him. The Hebrew word is nashima. It's a violent rushing wind, kind of like Pentecost. And the nashima kai, the violent rushing wind of life, entered into his body. And suddenly we have a merger of what is heavenly and what is earthly. And you were meant to proclaim a message. We're supposed to be teaching the entire world about something that is going to occur. Now, if you came today and you thought, man, I didn't know we were going to get into eschatology. We're not. We're going to go to a book that I know you all have memorized. We're going to go to the book of Haggai. Turn there with me. In the book of Haggai, or Haggai, if you like, I don't claim to have any of these pronunciations right. I can speak Hebrew like any southerner speaks any language poorly. You know, all over the world, they understand British English. But those of us from South Louisiana, it's like we speak another language, huh, Steve? You know, it's the funniest thing to see guys from Aberdeen, Scotland on a boat or on a drilling rig with guys from Scotlandville, Louisiana. They, they all know English, but uh, they can't understand each other. Come on, give me an amen, Charlie. <laughs> In the book of Haggai, we find something about God that teaches us about his heart. Let us pick up in the first line. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now, the first day of the sixth month is an interesting time. It's the first day of the month of Ul. The month of Ul is universally seen as a month of repentance. In other words, it's time to get ready because the Lord could blow a trumpet at any time in the next month or so. And we're not sure when it's going to be, but it will mark the beginning of a trumpet, an atonement, and a celebration that I don't want to miss. Do you think that it probably had their attention and that the timing's not by coincidence? Tell me that the timing's not by coincidence. Now, here's what you may not gather immediately. We are right now in the Hebrew calendar in the month of Ul. Their calendar is not in sync with ours because those who claimed to be Christian in the third century purposely separated it. They did not want Christianity to be associated with Judaism, although it obviously is, and worked very hard to make sure that our calendar did not match theirs. The first of Ul is actually on our calendar August 7th this year. So you might think about it like the starting of school. We're in the month of August now, yeah? Watch what happens during the month of August or the month of Ul in this case. In the second year, King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, I, I can't help but wonder when you hear those words. It may not make much sense to you. You know, you ever have a guy that worked with you from maybe the Far East? John, are you in here today? Okay, so John's from Vietnam. And John was born with a name that half of us can't pronounce. Okay, that's not fair, but it is what it is. So what do we Americans do when you find somebody with a name that you can't pronounce? You name him John. So the book of James in the Bible, by the way, 
There is no James. There never was a James, never will be a James in the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture, that word is Jacobus. Uh, and because there was a king in England named James, he simply said Jacobus will become James. That way he would be in the Bible, and that's how you get your King James Bible that you love so much, right? Of the 133 languages that I've looked it up in, it is not translated James in any language other than English. And it's just because we had a king named James. When we see these names, we might call Zerubbabel Zeke, we might call uh, Joshua Josh, and Jehozadak, you're not going to remember his name. But understand something. These names have a meaning. And in this meaning, you're going to find something I hope that you like. Zerubbabel means he who was gathered out of Babylon. Babylon in the Bible is the symbol of the world. It's the symbol of the kingdom that has to fall for the kingdom of God to come forward. Where were you gathered from, friends? I know you think you were born saved. But if you, like me, spent some time rolling around with pigs, then you were snatched right out of Babylon. Zerubbabel is an example of everyone who was ever saved out of the world and used for God's purpose. Is there anybody in here saved out of the world? Well, where does that leave the rest of you? It's okay to talk in church. Hey, if you have some pigment in your skin, I'm talking to you black folks in here, turn to your neighbor and tell them it's okay to speak out loud in church. Nobody will get in trouble. Okay, Matthew, help us. Start it out. Listen, it's okay to speak in church. It's going to be all right. Nobody's going to grade you. You're not going to get in trouble. It's going to be fine. Zerubbabel means he who was gathered out of the world. Well, most people who've been in church for a while have heard that the word Joshua is the word Yeshua. It is the same word that we translate from Greek to English as Jesus. By the way, Mary never said Jesus, not in her whole life, but that's another story. She called him Yeshu or Yeshua. It is this word. But how about Jehozadak? Jehozadak means Yahweh's righteousness. So we have two men gathered up, the one who was gathered out of the world and Yeshua, Son of Yahweh, the righteous. Now, is that a good story? How do you partner with the Son of God to do something? Does he partner with you? Did he make a covenant with you? He made a covenant with the Adarmes family. He began immediately telling them the things that he wanted them to accomplish in his name. They can't do it without him, but they can do it with him. We teach our kids to quote from very early on, I can do everything through... Christ Jesus who strengthens me. It's Philippians 4.13. We teach them to quote it, and we forget that it's our job to live it. See, when he called the Treaster family, he began telling them what they would build for him, spiritually speaking. He told them to invest in missions, and he would invest in their family. And so today, they have children who are spirit-filled, who are in love with the Lord, and are concerned with the nations. There was a partnership. Eric, were you born saved? No. Did you spend some years doing things we don't talk about in church? Spent some years doing some ugliness. But when he was snatched out of Babylon, he got in partnership with Yeshua Jehozadak, the Son of God, the Son of Yahweh the righteous. And what were they in partnership to do? Let's see what the Word came to tell them. Is it okay if we teach a little prophetically today? Is that all right with you? There are a lot of churches where you can go get three points in a poem or a message from the Vatican if you like. I don't like. So instead, we're going to get in the Word and see what God brings out of it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house 
to be built. How interesting is that? Procrastination. Would you turn with me to Proverbs 12, 24? Before we look at what they were called to build, we need to see what the people were saying. And it's funny how often the people are saying something in complete opposition to what God is saying. In Proverbs 12, 24, diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in... What's that word say? Laziness causes what? Slave labor. How interesting that simply by doing nothing, you become a slave. Apathy is the doorway, the pathway, the gateway to slavery. You want to prove it? How about, anybody in here been to Yellowstone? I have not, but I've read. Okay, big owl back there, you can't miss him. He's the one that is, you know, 5 feet, 18 inches tall or whatever that is. It's taller than that, isn't it? Anyway, big owl, been to Yellowstone. One of the most fearsome creatures in North America is a grizzly bear, right? Of course, people feeding a grizzly bear from their car and from campsites and from trash cans reduce one of the most... A grizzly bear can outrun you. Did you know that? Runs as fast as a horse does. Yep. A grizzly bear can outclimb you. Of course, my dachshund can outclimb me. <laughs> they can outswim you. How do you reduce them to mere house pets? You make them lazy. They don't have to fight for anything. They don't have to work for anything. They don't have to do anything. They simply get a handout. This is the way to reduce somebody to slave labor. Are you hearing me, church? You were meant to fight. You were meant to run. You were meant to swim. You were meant to climb. You were meant to work for the living God. And when we don't do it, it robs something of who we are. There is life in the fight to do something for God. So the people of God have to be daring. The people of God have to stand up and attempt bold things. And it should be hard. It should be impossible. It teaches us to lean on Him. It teaches us to find life in that struggle. How sad is it that America's become obsessed with having a life free of struggle. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in slave labor. You want to rule with the living God? We have to be diligent about the things He tells us to do. How about John 9, 4? John 9, 4 says that there are only so many hours, as long as it is day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. Do you have an unlimited amount of time to do what God called you to do? I saw a sign made me so mad yesterday, and it's probably not going to make you mad, okay? Can y'all tell that I can be a passionate person? Yep. It's not a put-on. 24 hours a day, Jen, am I lying? 24 hours a day, this is what you're going to get. Sometimes it's not directed in the right direction. Michael's been with me when he had to stand between me and somebody I thought was the enemy. The people of God are supposed to be filled with a desire to do something. You do not have an unlimited time to get your work done. You don't. And if you don't decide somewhere, I'm going to partner with Jesus. I'm going to let Him tell me when, how, and what to do. But I will not fail to do what He tells me to do. Then you will sit on your salvation your entire life and may be found to be a goat when He separates sheep from goats. 
Now, this is a message the church may not want to hear, but it's a message the church needs to hear. If we divided this room into those who had made 30 Christians, those who had made 60 Christians, and those who had made 90 Christians, would you find yourself without a camp to even sit in? And yet, could we have a plainer parable in all of the Bible? Then he wants an increase 30, 60, and 100 fold. But what do we do? We allegorize it, we intellectualize it, and we talk ourselves out of action as if the Lord of glory is not going to require an increase. I'm here to tell you he has a passion. He has a serious, burning passion that we need to talk about today. Now, I'm not going to read it to you, but you might write in your notes Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, because they emphasize being wise about how we live recognizing the time so that the whole world will learn from what we do. You should write that down. Let's go on in our book of Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. I didn't forget about the church sign that made me mad. I'm trying to pace my wrath a little bit. It's a church sign that you've probably seen many times and probably never upset you. It said, be calm, the Lord is in control. Now, I understand, that seems fairly innocuous, doesn't it? Be calm, the Lord is in control. As if the single biggest proclamation that needs to be made in the world is you're too busy, you're too passionate, you're too excited about doing something for God, calm down. Doesn't be calm, God's in control, translate into sit on your butt, do nothing, God will do it all? There's never been a more well-fed people than there is in this country right now. There has never been a people that had more access to the Word of God than this people right now. There has never been any time in history where you had access to better scholarship, better teaching, better training, better education than right now. And the average Christian feels no responsibility to build the Lord's house. Say, we, we say, oh yeah, of course we do. You know, I go to my local church. What does that have to do with building the Lord's house? Say, well, you don't understand. Our pastor's a fireball fact. Our pastor's better than yours. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what we like to do is talk about it like it's high school. What does that have to do with building the Lord's house? If you are a member of the Lord's house, you're responsible for adding to that building. You are responsible for doing the work of the kingdom. Oh, saints, let's see about Zerubbabel and let's see about Joshua. Now, this is what the Lord... Oh, verse 4, verse 3. <laughs> then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now, I recognize we're speaking to a broad spectrum of people today. To some, the nicest house you could dream of would be an apartment that somebody awarded you while you got back on your feet. And I'm not knocking you. I've been in those apartments. I like them. I've helped people move in them. I prefer to sleep in the air conditioning as opposed to sleep under the bridge by Spaghetti Warehouse. And I've done both. I prefer to sleep in a warm bed as opposed to a hammock in some jungle. And I've done both. I prefer a comfortable home 
And I'm not at all here knocking on your comfortable home. But let me ask you something. If your house had a giant hole in the roof, would you just go, oh, well, maybe be calm. God's in control. He'll fix it. Would you just stand and stare and say, if God wants it fixed, he'll fix it? If you had no front door, would you stand there and say, you know, if God wants me to have a front door, then he'll have one appear. Why do people treat God's house that way? Why do they say, if God wants me to witness to someone, then he will make them come into my living room, take the remote control out of my hand, kick me out of the lazy boy, pull on my beard and move my mouth. <laughs> if God wants me to go on a mission trip, then he won't leave me any choice, I'll have to go. If God wants me to witness to someone, if God wants me to be... Hey, hey let me demonstrate for you. If God wants me to be filled with the Holy Ghost, he'll do it. Friends, I can't even talk to you in that position. The church has gone into bomb shelter mode as if God is the kind of God who is going to shoot a scud missile from the heavens and penetrate your best resistance and make you do something. Nobody gets saved that way. People get saved. They get filled with the Holy Ghost and they begin moving in the work God called them to move in when they're asking to partner with Jesus when they're asking for him to lead them, when they're willing to step in the direction. But most are all too comfortable to simply be sit, sit and be fed like those bears in the national park. As a Christian, you were called to do God's work on earth. Did God deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt? Say yes if he did. And yet, he had Moses go and be his representative, didn't he? Did God split the Red Sea? Yes, but he had Moses stretch out his hand. What if Moses said no? We say that the Jordan River was split. What if the priests didn't step out and put their feet in? We say the walls to Jericho fell. What if the people didn't blow the ram's horns? Our generation has bought into the idea that we do nothing and God will do it all if he wants it done, and it's a lie. You work for him. He put himself inside of you so that his energy could work powerfully in you to get it done. And do you know why we've put up with this lie? Because there is an impotent priesthood who stands on a platform to make sure as high as you can possibly stand that we're better than you. We're looking for whatever we can do to say, look how high and lifted up I am. Pay for my existence and do nothing. Your job becomes to shut up and tithe. Your job becomes to sit on your salvation and learn. Prepare, 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 prepare. Did you hear that word today? I don't think I've ever given a tongue and an interpretation. Why not just give the interpretation? I have no idea. I didn't have it. <laughs> what I'm hoping you're gathering here is it is a self-serving message that says, look at me, I'm a great man of God, and you should support me because you could never be like me. And that's what we're hearing in not so many words. Nobody actually expects you to go out and do whatever the man on the stage says he's doing except God. He does. He expects you to preach his word. He expects you to heal. 
He expects you to raise the dead. He expects you to prophesy. He expects you to do the things Jesus did and hear this, even greater works. He expects it of you, even if a lame duck priesthood does not. Now, given that, how many of us are more concerned with God's house than our house? See, we make sure that our doors are locked. We make sure that our windows are down. We make sure our AC is turned on. We make sure that we have food in our cupboard. But God's house requires us to make sure that our brothers across the ocean have food in their cupboard. God's house requires us to make sure they have a roof over their head. God's house requires us to make sure that they're not going to hell by the hundreds of thousands daily because people were too selfish to learn their language and preach the gospel to them. Oh, listen how quiet it is. I know. You know what? Because I need to fill up all of these chairs and I hope to gather a giant offering. We don't even pass one. I'll just tell you you're champions and it's Friday. Maybe I can hand out donuts and give out gift certificates. This is the stuff the American church puts up with. You know who won't? God. Look at what these men did. So on August 7th, on Tishri the 1st, a word came. And God begins to tell them in verse 5, Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. Now, we could talk about this from a financial standpoint, and maybe some of you could find a way to make yourself a victim. But every person in this room has more than the average person in India. Every single person. I don't care whether you're homeless or not. I've been there seven times. When you've been there seven times, I'll argue with you. Until then, you're going to have to trust me. I have seen a sea of people sleep among rats with no food and not even a blanket to cover them. In this country... You don't have to sleep in that situation unless you choose to. You have planted much but harvested little. Our churches have sown seed, sown seed, sown seed, sown seed. And there is no harvest. Do you know why there's no harvest? Because we're not building God's house, we're building our own kingdoms. You can center an entire church around a chicken cam. You can send in a, an entire church around a Starbucks in the lobby. You can center an entire church around tickling, itching ears. But God centers His church around those who want to do His work more than they want to live their own lives. This is why Matthew 16, 24 says, If anyone, not some men, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Where is that in our message? Have you denied yourself or have you denied the Lord's house? Oh man, he's working an offering. I want you to understand I'm not after your checkbook. I won't pass a plate in here today. It's not your money I want. Are you working as hard for Jesus as you would your secular employer? You know, one thing about hourly employees, and I was one for a long time. Matthew and I were kicking this around the other day. I used to complain. Now, young people, this will surprise you, but I started working. It was, I think, $3.15 an hour. $1.65 here. And you know, what do we say? You go and you go, man, I was only making $1.65 an hour. And 
You talk about how you needed a raise, but you never talk about all those hours that they didn't even get $1.65 out of you. You know, you're on smoke break, you at the coffee pot. How many of us are going to have to back up on that day facing judgment because we've committed time theft against the Lord? We've said he owns us. We've said he's our Lord. But when it comes down to actual hours serving him, the best we can do is add up our church attendance as if that's what he wanted from you. Nowhere in the gospel does it tell you attend church to serve God. It does tell you not to neglect the gathering together. Why? Because you're going to spur one another on towards righteousness. This is a huddle where you're supposed to find out the play and go out to the field of life and perform what you know and your brothers have encouraged you you're supposed to do. I just looked to the left and I caught JJ's eye and I can't help it. JJ and Natalie are called to work with couples. They're called to open their home. They're called to share their lives. The fact that they're called to do that doesn't in and of itself alleviate them of pressure to do it. The fact that they know they're called to do that actually makes them more obligated to do it. What are you called to do? See, Zerubbabel knew. Joshua knew what they were called to do. They made their lives about building God's house. And God begins to speak to them. He says, you people are procrastinating. You know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. Did you know that James 4, 17 says, any man that knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, he sins. Today in the church, we've defined sin as doing something God said not to do. The Bible more accurately defines sin as knowing the good that you should do and in apathy refusing to do it. Listen, these men heard this. They examined their lives and they said, you know, you're right. We harvest, we fill our purses and it's like there's holes in it. They realized they had lives that God could not bless. You know, how many of you like the song, God Bless America? Well, what if America's not worth blessing? In God we trust on our money. Who's God? The God of money? We all want a blessing, but are you living a life that can be blessed? The man who knows he's going to have the blessing of the Lord is the one that is working for the Lord. I want you to think about how audacious it would be to say, Halliburton, I'm in the country of Iraq. Come rescue me now. And you never worked for Halliburton. But if you're an employee of Halliburton and they sent you there on assignment, you would expect them to move heaven and earth to contact the embassy to do whatever it took to get you out because they're the one that sent you there. If you work for the living God, you can expect him to move heaven and earth to meet you in your need and in your situation. But when you never worked for him and all you do is say, bless me, how obnoxious is that? Now, my neighbor's kid might come over and ask me to feed him, and I do it because I love the Lord. But I don't have the same obligation to feed him that I feel towards my child. The Lord very well may bless you because he's benevolent. But when we stand doing nothing for the body of Christ and act as if we are kings in our own right, and I know the Lord's going to... How many of you heard the prayer of Jabez, right? But you never heard the prayer of Asa. You heard the prayer of Jabez, but you never heard the gut-wrenching prayer of Paul. 
You heard the prayer of Jabez, but you don't know what it is to stand like Moses and say, I'd rather die than see your name besmirched among the Gentiles. How is it that we came to be so entitled? How is it that we came to lay claim to everything in heaven when we've done nothing on the earth? Church, I believe that you're called to do things on the earth. I believe that the very kingdom of God breathes the power and substance of heaven into you because you have a purpose and a calling. You know why people kill themselves? Because they have no purpose. They feel like they have no purpose. And the church hasn't supplied one. The purpose is to sit and listen. No, that doesn't work. You sit and listen to find your purpose so you can go and do. How many of you want to know what your purpose is? See, when you make a covenant with Jesus, he begins to show you why he put you on the earth. And that, my friend, makes life worth living. It's as if to protect the church, we make sure nobody in the church can be the church. That way you'll be dependent upon the leaders of the church and you'll pay them. I'm so happy I don't work for you. I work for the living God. And my job is to serve you because he values you. And I serve you to the point that I'm supposed to be raising you up for your works of service. That's what Ephesians 4 teaches. A pastor is not worth his salt if he is not raising up people to do the work of the kingdom. You ever heard somebody say, I raise great children? Yeah, but the point is to raise adults, isn't it? They start as children. If all you ever do is raise a child, then friends, you've, you've locked them in perpetual failure. The point is to produce an autonomous, productive adult who affects society around them and thus affects the kingdom of God. That's the point. Well, I raise great children. That's what the church could say. Be calm. God's in control. We're raising great children. We're supposed to be raising world-changing powerhouses. I don't know where I am. Y'all bear with me here? How about verse 7? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timbers and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. <laughs> How many times... Does God require you to go, climb, cut down, and drag back something to honor him? Why? Why can't we just use what is right here and what's expedient? You know, I've been in a lot of countries, more than 20. Do you know how people build houses in, pick a country, in Romania? In Romania, they build houses out of what is there locally. Do you know how they build houses in Africa? They build houses out of what is right there locally. In India, they do the same. And a house in India does not look the same as a house in the United States. A house in Germany does not look the same as a house in the United States. You know why? Because we build out of what we have locally. But when somebody really cares about a house, what do they do? I mean, if you have an unlimited budget, what do you do? Oh, man, you bring marble from Rome. You bring slate from somewhere else. And you find some way to tell your friends, don't you? Now, maybe you don't do that. I hope you don't do that. I hope you're not a pretentious snob. I know most of you. Most of you are not that. A few of you I'm still wanting. No, I'm kidding. God, when he wants his house built, does not want it built with the cheapest, easiest, most available stuff. He is after the hard-to-get timbers that are on the mountains. 
He is after something that has to be cut down and uprooted from the earth. He is after something that had to show trust in him and effort to get it. Do you know there was a time in David's life he was offered the temple threshing floor for free? Did you know that? How many of you like something for free? Don't act like you don't go to Sam's on Saturday to get stuff for free. My kids like to go with their granddad to Sam's on Saturday. They get to sample all the food in Sam's for free. Listen, David would not accept something that was going to be used for the Lord at no cost. How could we accept salvation at no cost? We say, oh, it's a free gift to everyone, and our theology spouts it and spouts it and spouts it. And we forget that free gift then requires you to deny yourself every day and work for him. Tell me the kingdom is really no cost. It costs Jesus everything, and you're called to be just like him. You could never buy salvation. Never. But if you are saved, your whole life belongs to him. He becomes your owner, your master, your controller. They had to go up, and they had to get it. And what did he say he would do? That I may take pleasure in it. I spent most of my life preaching against steeples and stained glass against hard pews and hard hearts. And I have because today the churches are about a great man and a great building. I think it's about a great God. And yet I cannot deny that this passage of Scripture says that I may take pleasure in it. What is the it? The house that they build. Why would God take pleasure in brick and mortar? Why would God care at all about a building? The highest heavens can't contain him. Why would he care? Because every stone that was laid was at a cost to a people who loved him enough to pay the cost. Oh, saints, what have you built for the Lord that was hard for you? What did you have to count tears to do? You know, this pulpit, I think it's beautiful. I, I, I may have different tastes than you. It's, it's made of mesquite. A craftsman made that for me. And I do love it. But I don't love it like I love another one. There's another one I can't bring myself to throw away. We keep it back there just in case this one has some problem. You know why I love it? Because I cut every board in it. Because I nearly cut that thumb off while I was making it. Because I nailed the last two boards in it with my left hand because my right hand uh, had been injured in a table saw. I love it because of what it cost me to make it. Where are you at, Brandon? Oh, Brandon had to go to work. Steph, are you here? Steph. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot other than I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Steph, did your husband make you something recently? Now, he's not here and we won't tell him. But is it the prettiest piece of furniture you've ever seen in your life? You can be honest. Look, she's turning red. I put her on the spot. You can be honest. It's not, is it? Y'all don't tell Brandon. But do you value it like it was the prettiest thing you've ever seen? Why? Because he made it. It was his first attempt at furniture. He showed me, and he was so proud that I fought off everything that came to mind. And I said, congratulations, man of God. You started and completed a project. Yeah. Now, hear this, saints. Why does God take pleasure in what you build? He takes pleasure because he knows the effort 
that goes into it, and that effort honors Him. It's not works-based salvation. What a stupid argument to even enter our minds. What it is is a labor of love. What are you laboring in love to produce for the King? When I look at the Vincents back there, they got their share of children, and they keep popping out more. It's not like they're sitting at home with nothing to do. But you can't find a night of the week that they're not teaching, serving, loving, doing whatever they can to build the kingdom. Why? Is it because the world just has to have an ice cream social? I thought that stopped in the 20s, you know, an ice cream social. And you know what? It's one of the finest events that our church has. You know why? Because it sprang right from their hearts as a labor of love. Right? And they take it seriously. The brother grows his own fruit, cuts it up, and puts it in the ice cream. Now, that might not make it better to anybody there except Brent because he grew that fruit. Matthew grew a fig one time, and I had to hear about that fig for a year. <laughs> that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. I'd like to skip down to verse 13. Is that okay? Wow. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak. When's the last time you got good and stirred up for God? I'm sick of hearing, be calm, God's in control. How about get fired up because His spirit's with you? You know, that little church has probably been too calm for too long. You know, I had a neat little cemetery outside the building, and I bet it's got a neat little cemetery inside the building. I don't think we ought to be calm anymore. If you believed you were in the sixth month and the trumpet was about to sound, I doubt you'd be calm. You'd get busy doing what God called you to do. Amen. Friends, the hour is late. We can't fall asleep. What happens when that trumpet does sound? So they stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Then it says, uh, They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. The 24th day of the sixth month. On August 7th, the call went out. On August 30th, the people had gathered and begun to work. Have you begun the work of God? Beginning is not the same as completing. You start a school year in August. But if all you did was start it, you don't get the diploma. The church is convinced that if you started, then you get the diploma because you started. It is not true. You have to complete what you start. Turn with me to the second chapter. Look at verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong now, uh, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt in my spirit remains among you. You know, I see on shirts all of the time, 
Zechariah 4.6. And I hear Christians quote it. They say it's not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. Do you have any idea the context in which that is? That doesn't mean be calm, God's in control. That doesn't mean that at all. It says you're facing overwhelming odds. You have begun to build a temple and you do not have the material to complete it. You don't have what it takes. The nations are going to ridicule you. The people around you are going to try to stop you. Haggai shows up and says, be strong, do the work. Zechariah shows up and he says, hey, didn't I anoint two for this task? I anointed Zerubbabel. I anointed Jeho uh, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. The plumb line's in his hand. It won't be by strength nor power, the sixth verse of the fourth chapter of Zechariah says. It will be by my spirit. How do you complete the work he gave you to do? Friends, if you can work it out on a calculator, then it's not the work he gave you to do. If faith doesn't go a little further than your finances, it's not faith. I'm not talking about some irresponsible prosperity lie that pimps out the body of Christ for some pastor's selfish gain. I don't want an Escalade. I don't want a jet. I don't want some house that could be confused with an apartment complex. I'm simply talking about if it was neatly within your power to do it, then how would you know that it was the Lord's work and you had to covenant with Him? The living God wants you to take up a cause that is bigger than you but is not bigger than Him. He wants you to work at it every day and when you become exhausted and you look and say it's amounting to nothing, He can look at you and send two prophets, one that says be strong and do the work and the other says it won't be by your power or your might, it'll be by my spirit, says the Lord. And what do you do? You take a deep breath of heaven and you go back to work and it honors him. Say, but my little table I'm building for the Lord is ugly. The honor that went into it is not ugly. The effort on his behalf is not ugly. We are too results-based as Americans. You think you failed because you witnessed to somebody and they didn't fall down and get born again. Do you realize that God may have had you witness to them to increase the judgment in their life? Do you know that you may have planted a seed and somebody else watered it and God get the increase and He doesn't want either one of you to be able to take pride in it? He wants only the glory for Him? We say, oh, well, I prayed and I didn't see healing. Yeah, but who was watching? See, we can't know. It's not our job to know. We're airline pilots that are arguing with our traffic controller about our route. You can't see what he sees. You worry about the instruction and let him worry about the obstruction. The living God deserves to rule your life. He does. But it ought to take a covenant with Yeshua to do that. How about this? This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 6. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands. I will shake the nations, and the desired of all the nations will come. The desired of all the nations will come. On the Jewish calendar, we're in the year 5,774. 5,774. That's a lot, isn't it? not a lot? What if I gave you $5,774? How many of you would rush the stage? 
What if you had to stand up and swing at the plate 5,774 times and you hadn't hit the ball yet? Would you give up? 5,774 is the Jewish reckoning of time from the garden till now. We can argue about whether they're right later, but the one thing I know probably is not right is the calendar the Romans gave us. Nothing else they gave us is right. Five thousand seven hundred and seventy-four. You know, if somebody sticks with something a long time, you might say it's their passion. For five thousand seven hundred and seventy-four years, the living God has desired for men to be saved. He desires a shaking to occur. His people busy at work so that while His people are busy at work, He can shake the landscape and the nations will be drawn to his house. Y'all feel like we're in tough times in America? Well, you know, for spoiled Americans, it's tough times. But I'm not going to pick on you. I, I'm, I'm the spoiled American too. In India, our worst day this year is better than their best day. Okay? But we all have a general feeling that there's kind of a state of decline going on. We feel as if we are moving towards a post-Christian kind of place, right? What if God is just shaking this place so that those who are really working for Him will see the desired ones coming into His house? He came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the lost. He didn't come for the well-adjusted, tithing, silent member. 1 Timothy 2.4. Could you put that on the screen? It's worth everybody seeing. 1 Timothy 2.4. Who wants all... Say all, all. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many men does he want to be saved? All. Is his house built and finished? Friends, you are his house. Are you complete? You're not complete until all men are saved. Say, but I know some won't be saved. You don't know which ones won't be saved. How dare you step in his role and decide? How many this week have you told? How many this year? In your whole Christian walk, who is following behind the example that you are leading? Oh, well, that was my pastor's job. That's what we pay him for. Then how can you be a kingdom of priests? See, it's not a pastor's job, at least not just his job. It's every person's job to proclaim the glory of the gospel. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, Open your eyes. Uh, we'll start in 4.30. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Keep going, Susan. Do not say four more months and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. The problem is not that they're not lost and dying. The problem is we're busy building our own houses. We live in a day where we're looking for better techniques, if I'm honest. Every pastor's seminar that I have seen in the last 20 years has included at least one class, one day, on church growth strategies. 
Do you think we need better strategies? I think we need better men. I think we need those who will go into the mountains and cut down a tree instead of just pick it up from Home Depot or steal it from somebody else's pile. I think we need those that are not scared of a little shaking that threatens their comfort because it's the shaking that brings in the desire of the nations. I don't have it in me to whine and cry and be worried about the decline of America. I'm excited. Why? Are you not a patriot? Of course I'm a patriot. But you know what I realize? The poor are rich in faith. That's what I realize. I realize that if people have to struggle a little bit, even a little bit, their hearts begin to turn towards the Lord. And I, like my king, desire that all men be saved. I think they're dying and they're in slavery and they don't even know it. I think that they have laid claim to rule everything, but they don't have diligent hands. That's what I think. I think our churches are full of people that are convinced they're going to heaven and they are destined for hell. I, I'm so burdened by that thought that you hear it every week in some kind of way that I might do my part in this proclamation. Oh, church, the house has got to get built. 5,774 years. This is such a, a crazy thing when you think about it. Look at verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, be careful, I'm sorry, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. From the day that they started on the first of Ul to the ninth day, I'm sorry, to the 24th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev, is 81 days. In 81 days, the people were so passionate about the work of God that they established a foundation that God's temple forever would be built on. And listen, I've been to Israel twice. The foundation they laid is still there. It's the year 5,774. And if you go to Israel, you can still see a stone that they laid in 81 days of passion. What's going to be your legacy? When it comes down to it, and you're dead and gone, what will people be able to say stands for the Lord because of you? Brother Jay preached not that long ago, and he mentioned Isaiah, the first chapter and 19th verse. It says, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. And he said, you don't eat just the best from the land because you're a king's kid. You eat the best from the land when you're willing and obedient. Saints, it's time to let our walk match our profession. It's time that we be the shining light that we say we are. Amen. You know who just clapped? I want you to think about that for a minute. I, I'm not fighting for clapping, you know. I, I love you guys, I do, but I'm going to sleep just fine tonight. Okay, I want you to know that. Think about who just clapped. She'd been born again two weeks. You know why she clapped? Because her passion hadn't died yet. It's just getting started. You know? In, in churches like these, remnant churches, whatever you want to call it, we make ourselves feel better by talking about other churches. But when it comes down to it, does your spiritual fervor today match your spiritual fervor the day you got filled with the Holy Ghost, saved or water baptized? See, we're not the church of the waning we're the church of an ever-increasing deposit, an ever-narrowing way, an ever-growing love. 
There's no room to rest on your laurels. None of us have achieved that much. Every day belongs to the Lord. The question is, are you going to give it to Him? So I want you to think about this in your school year terms, since that's how I put it earlier. On August 7th, you get a word. On August 30th, you begin the work. In September, you need encouragement already. And by the time November comes, you've got such a good foundation that it can never be removed from you. We're starting a school year right now. Don't you expect that what your kids learn and whatever grade they're in, that by the time we reach Christmas, they have something real and substantive? You get mad at their teachers and say they're teaching to the test and all of the things that you say to take personal accountability off of you. You expect, though, that their lives have fundamentally changed and been added to in some way from August to late November. And if not, what do we do? Come May, you go to summer school. And if you don't get it then, you repeat the grade. How many of us are still repeating first grade Christianity and calling ourselves seniors? You know, when I was born again that weekend, I got arrested for handing out tracts in a mall because I had a passion. Misdirected, full of zeal, but a passion. The 69th Psalm says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Okay, we're about to close. But if we go and ask your neighbors, tell me who the phrase, zeal for your house has consumed me, applies to. If they're biblically astute, they might say Jesus. If you say, okay, not Jesus, who else? How many of them would name your name? Hmm? Does zeal for his work consume you? It so consumed Jesus that he took a whip and took on the entire religious establishment. It so consumed Jesus that he purposely healed people on days that everyone else disapproved of. It so consumed Jesus that he took two fish and five loaves of bread and he fed thousands of people. Nobody could tell him what couldn't be done. He was in covenant with the Almighty God. It so consumed Jesus that he's so invested in 12 men that they've changed the world as we know it. And you give testimony to their work when you say it's the year 2013 since Jesus was born. What has so consumed you that it's going to leave a legacy? Hmm? You hope to leave a house to your children. Hope to leave cars or you hope they're educated. What do you hope to give them in the Lord? And how are you making good on that hope? See... Man hopes for what he doesn't have. That's what the scripture says. I'm saying it's time to begin the work. Hmm? Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to read to you out of 1 Peter. And this will be our closing scripture. This is 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In your sphere of influence, friends, you are to be that cornerstone. You're supposed to represent the work of God. Others are supposed to look at your life like a living epistle. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to the Lord that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. He goes on to say we ought to live like aliens and strangers. We ought to have such a passion that people ask us. In 81 days, they left a monument on the planet for God. If you witnessed to everyone you met for the next 81 days, what would you leave for an eternity? Say, well, the Lord's not leading me to do that. But let me ask you, when's the last time he did lead you to do something? Are you sure that you've called him? You're sure you've asked him? You sure you're willing? Because we need to figure out how he wants all men to be saved, and yet he's not asking you to participate in that. Evangelism is the lifeblood of the kingdom, friends. It is. If we don't care about the lost, then we might as well sell anointed prayer cloths or some other stupid thing that they do on TV. Maybe we could put gas pumps out there. But I do care about the lost. I love that people are getting saved. I remember when a lot of you got saved. Remember when you fell in love with the Lord and the passion that accompanied it. I say it's time to stir that passion up. They told me it was going to fade in my life. They all told me that one day when I was as old and as wise as them, Good thing I never got as old as them. They're still older. They're probably still wiser. But when I leave this earth, there's going to be a harvest behind me. How about you? Could we pray together? Is that all right? Yes. 